This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, September 9th, 2022. This is 91.3 KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellums. With me to start our program from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilly with Talk Business and Politics. And a pleasant Friday to you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me back. All right. You, let's start with something that isn't going to happen. And that is a voting location on the University of Arkansas Fort Smith campus. We thought there was going to be one, but there's not. Why? What? Well, why is the question, um, and nobody seems to know uh, as of this recording. Um, a little background: Dr. Riley, Dr. Teresa Riley, she's the chancellor at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. She and her staff uh, had approached the Sebastian County Election Commission wanted to create a voting center there, voting location. Um, several hundred, if not maybe a thousand people uh, or Sebastian County voters are there. It's a centralized, it's, I mean, as, as both election commissioner uh, Jason Vineyard, who's chairman and commissioner Lee Webb told us it was an ideal location. You know, you kind of have a captured audience, so to speak. Ufus um, had worked with the um, election commission staff on security, space, parking, all of that. Uh, election commission even toured uh, the campus and the location, and everybody was on board. And then at August 29th meeting, Kara Jean, um, Kara Jean and Jason Vineyard are the two Republican members of the commission, and Lee Webb is the Democrat member of the three member commission. Uh, out of the blue, Commissioner Gene just opposed it, voted no. Um, and you need three, all three have to approve mm. opening the center, and all three have to approve closing the center. Uh, and she wouldn't, it was a surprise. Um, and nobody would say why, or she wouldn't explain why. We have tried many times to contact her by phone and email. Uh, we've also asked Mr. Vineyard, who's her, as I said, is her Republican counterpart, uh, on the commission, he doesn't know. In fact, he told us, he said, look, if you find out, let me know why she's voting no, which is kind of crazy in and of itself. But so they were supposed to have another uh, special meeting uh, on Thursday, September 8th, and that, uh, excuse me, uh, September 7th, I should say, and that was canceled uh, with no reason. And uh, Dr. Riley and members of her staff had prepared presentation. They prepared to attend that meeting to explain why it was a good deal for not only uh, the students, but, you know, everybody involved. Um, and also, opening up this center didn't affect any other polling sites. The commission, uh, election commission, had said it had plenty of resources to open and, and staff and operate this site. So it wasn't at the detriment of any other site. It was an expansion of voting opportunities in Sebastian County. Uh, and Miss Jean said no. And so after this Thursday, excuse me, Wednesday meeting was canceled without explanation, Dr. Riley sent the uh, commission a letter, an uh, email note, and pretty much said, we're going to, we rescind our offer. We're, we're just, we're not going to pursue it right now. I think there's, I, I've been told that smarter, cooler heads are trying to prevail. Um, and because it, everybody agrees it makes too much sense. Um, I think the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, I think several other campuses around the state have uh, voting sites. Uh, so it's, this is not something that hasn't been done before. So it's a puzzle. Um, Lee Webb, 
uh, like I said, who's the Democratic member, he alleges that this is could be a voter suppression attempt that, you know, Kara Jean knows that, you know, university students, university faculty, um, probably their demographic is not, that demographic is not going to vote always with uh, the Republican or conservative vote. But as Lee's point was, he said the weakest uh, uh, part of their voting history in the county is that they don't recruit, they, they, they're not seeing enough young people vote. That demographic just doesn't vote. And he said this was a perfect way to begin addressing that shortfall. And she, again, voted no, won't explain why, uh, won't even tell her, the other members of the commission why she's voting no. So it's a, it's definitely a mystery. And, um, you know, she, Commissioner Jean has a, uh, she has a public office, and and many think she has a public obligation to explain why she will not uh, approve something that everyone else uh, thinks is not only um, doable but is a great idea and would hopefully improve voter turnout in the county. So, stay tuned. I don't think we've heard the last of this. If we were doing uh, our visits back in two thousand two, we might have been. Oh, I don't know, talking about Lose Yourself by Eminem, which was a big hit in 2002. <laughs> we would have also been talking about uh, a, the start of a water uh, lawsuit between Fort Smith and Barling. Well, guess what? It's been settled. Yeah, and I'm going to have that Lose Yourself in my head now for the rest of the day <laughs> and weekend. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Uh, yeah, so what are friends for, right? That's right. Um, right, so... the yeah, so the city of Fort Smith and the city of Barling, I'm not going to go into a lot of the details, but this was back when the cities, Barling, Fort Smith, Greenwood, were still trying to figure out how they were going to divvy up all the Chaffee Crossing property. Part of that included um, the city of Fort Smith providing, uh, setting a new contract to provide water to the city of Barling because Barling, Barling was going to be taking on a lot more property. And so they set a contract at the time that Barling would make a minimum purchase of 587,000 gallons of water a day. That's a lot of water, but I guess if you're pushing out a lot of water to thousands of residents, it's not. But and and whatever water they didn't use. So, you know, if they came in at 530,000 a day, there would be a true up. What's called a true up that Barling would have to eventually pay the difference between sure. what was purchased and the minimum requirement. So for whatever reasons, um, the city of Fort Smith simply forgot on an annual basis to send them a separate invoice for that true-up charge, which that's a whole other story. But in 2017, the city of Fort Smith was looking into some grant opportunities, some ways to work with other cities, including Barling, uh, to continue to develop Chaffee Crossing. They came across, that's when they discovered that they had not been charging Barling what they had owed by the for uh, under the contract at the time the city of Fort Smith alleged that Barling owed them about one one point one million. Barling came back to their attorney Matt Ketchum, uh, who's uh, an attorney with Cadell Reynolds in Fort Smith, and said, "You're right. We should have been paying it. Uh, also, you should have been billing us for it. Um, state law only allows you to go back for five years." Um, so we'll, we'll talk about paying that city of Fort Smith wasn't having it long. They took him to court. 
Long story short, the court rejected the city's um, judgment. The city sought a summary judgment of about nine hundred nine, a little over nine hundred thousand dollars. Uh, Circuit Judge James Cox rejected that. What has followed since are ongoing negotiations, and what they came up with was a $325,000 payment. So the city of Barling is going to pay Fort Smith $325,000 for roughly a, around a million, 1.1 million, if you if you uh, believe what the city Fort Smith said it was owed. So um, so that's the end of that deal. Hopefully, um, I and I. I think the city, the city of Fort Smith and the city of Barling, I think I don't want to characterize this as this is a big overarching dispute and they don't like each other. They get along on, on almost this was just an ongoing water dispute that, frankly, Fort Smith probably should have just said, we screwed up. Um, we should have been billing you. It's kind of like the recycling issue we've talked about. The city should have just fessed up that it messed up and tried to make it right and try to do the right thing by everybody and not take them to court, not make it a litigious um, situation. But they did. But after all of that, they settled on a $325,000 payment. So hopefully everybody can kiss and make up at this point. You can read about all of this and much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael Tilley, thank you so much. All right. And since we didn't say anything about the hogs last week, let's not say anything this week. Oh, I think that's a, That's a great plan. (laughs) (laughs) Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, offering shopping in the original Walton's Five and Dime on the Bentonville Square. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. After two virtual years, the 44th annual Ozark Quilt Fair is live again this Saturday, September 10th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., on the grounds of the Shiloh Museum in Springdale. This year's festivities will include live music, a food truck, and antique toys for children to play with. Viewers' choice prizes for both new and antique quilts will be awarded. Details available at shilohmuseum.org or 479-750-8165. This is Ozarks at Large. In August, the FBI and Arkansas law enforcement arrested four people in northwest Arkansas in what was a nationwide sex trafficking operation. The campaign, called Operation Cross Country, identified victims of child sex trafficking and human trafficking. The issue received widespread attention and raised concern about the prevalence of human trafficking in our region. According to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, More than 1,100 victims of sex trafficking have been identified in Arkansas since 2007. To get a better understanding of the issue, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth sat down with Annie Smith, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas and Director of the school's Human Trafficking Legal Clinic. So we're talking about human trafficking. Can you sort of break down the term human trafficking, what that means, and and what we mean when we talk about that both in kind of like a legal definition and then sort of as, as lay people, what you hear when you hear that term. So it's a fairly new crime and a fairly new laws that um, define it. So since 2000, um, there's been a federal Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which includes definitions of what we sort of colloquially refer to as human trafficking. Um, and then in 2013, the Arkansas legislature passed the a law that also created a crime called trafficking of persons. So usually when we're talking about that, we'd say human trafficking, 
Um, but it actually includes sort of a number of definitions, both federal and state. And then in Arkansas, can you sort of break down how prevalent the issue is here or if it's prevalent at all in, in the state really? Prevalence questions are really difficult, both for fundraising purposes and for getting the attention of community members. People like to provide statistics and say like, oh, this many million people are victims of human trafficking. And the reality is that we don't really have great statistics in Arkansas or globally. But we do know that human trafficking happens in Arkansas. We do know that it happens in Northwest Arkansas as well. And can you you tell me just kind of you know, what that looks like here when when we say it does happen in Arkansas? What sure. Like? So I think it's probably quite similar to the way that it looks around the country. So I've worked in different states and different parts of the country, and there have not been vast regional differences in my experience. So I think the most sort of helpful definition that you could think about is that it's the use of force, fraud, or coercion to get someone to perform work, services, or engage in commercial sexual activity. And commercial sexual activity is some kind of sex act in exchange for something of value. That thing of value doesn't have to be money. It could be food. It could be drugs. It could be rent. And the other important part of the definition is that anytime someone under 18 engages in commercial sex, that is human trafficking under federal law and under state law. There doesn't have to be any force, fraud, or coercion. So if a 13-year-old engages in commercial sex, that's it. You're done. That's trafficking. And you were talking about sort of there's not a good way to to measure and to put out those statistics. So how do agencies here in the state or, or nationally kind of compile that data? And where do we where do they get those numbers that we see from? Yeah, there's a lot of debate. That's like a very um, hot topic in some circles and really contested issue. So um, one source of data, which is you know, folks have raised concerns about, but is a starting place, um, is data that's compiled by Polaris, which is the national organization that runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline. So they get calls, they operate phone calls confidentially, and they compile some data about cases that when they get those calls of cases they think are probable cases of human trafficking. So that's one source. But obviously it's a problematic source for a lot of reasons, including like someone has to know the hotline exists and actually make the call. There's data that's related to the number of federal prosecutions. That's like a severe undercounting of the amount of human trafficking that actually takes place. So like, for example, um, in 2021 in the Western District of Arkansas, there were zero criminal cases initiated related to federal human trafficking crimes. Right. Wow. And we know that human trafficking, sex trafficking happened here. Yeah. Um, so it's not a great mar- measure. There's also, as far as I know, never been a federal labor trafficking prosecution in our state since 2000 ever. And wow. we know that labor trafficking happens here. So again, that's not a great measure. Yeah. And speaking of labor trafficking, can you kind of break that down? Because I know when we talk about human trafficking, I think people just assume that it is is sex trafficking. So, so can you tell me sort of a definition of what labor trafficking is and how it presents itself? Sure. So again, it would be the under the federal definition, roughly, it would be the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel someone to perform work. What it can look like on the ground, I'll give you an example from a case that I handled a long time ago. We represented um, about 20 guest workers who'd come from the Philippines. They had gotten visas, temporary work visas, to come and work in the U.S. lawfully. They were taken to country club, to work in country clubs and hotels in South Florida. 
And when they got there, they were taken to work for employers that weren't specified on their visas. They were all housed with other workers in a single family home, so in terrible living conditions. And they were told by their employer, look, you can leave if you want to. You don't like it, but I'm going to call the police. They're going to come. They're going to handcuff you. They're going to deport you to the Philippines, and you're going to be legally blacklisted so that you're not permitted to ever leave the Philippines and work in the U.S. again. And for folks who are coming from a country like the Philippines where remittances are so critically important um, to the economy of the country and to the lives of their families, that that is a really tremendous threat to make, and not to mention sort of the reputational harm that they thought they would suffer. And then I was wondering if you could talk just about misconceptions around human trafficking and perception, because there was this story recently of a bus that happened in Fayetteville around human sex trafficking, um, and it, it kind of got a lot of traction, big headline. Um, but what does that actually mean? What should people be looking for when they see these headlines come up? Yep. So sensationalized headlines are really common in human trafficking. It's a very sort of hot topic. Um, movies like Taken are incredibly unhelpful because they perpetuate myths about human trafficking. Right? What we know about human trafficking is it's exceedingly rare that someone is going to be like grabbed in a parking lot and thrown into a van by a stranger. I think much more common and what I've heard much more from my colleagues in law enforcement um, and in child advocacy centers here in northwest Arkansas is that there's grooming that takes place, um, especially with minor victims, that it would be more common that a minor, a child who feels like they don't have good relationships at home, they've been kicked out of their home, maybe they're being abused at home, that a trafficker or someone who's working with them identifies that vulnerability and then says, like, I can take care of you, let me support you, and they start grooming them, taking care of them, maybe pretend that they're in an intimate partner relationship with them, and then they exploit that trust and that dependence to then get them to engage, for example, in commercial sexual activity. So I think that is much more common than what what we might think of or what people might think of when they talk about, oh, you know, kids are being like stolen and, and taken and like put in vans and taken on the road. But yeah, so myths about human trafficking are pervasive and incredibly helpful to traffickers um, because they make it harder for law enforcement to do their job. They make it harder for community members to support people who might actually be experiencing trafficking. And I think they make it harder for communities to try to do real preventive work. So you've identified a couple of the myths. Uh, one of them is that the only form of trafficking is sex trafficking, when in fact federal and Arkansas law recognize both sex and labor trafficking. Another myth is that um, some kind of force is required for an exploitive situation to constitute human trafficking. And that's absolutely not true. The clients I talked about earlier, they worked in nice country clubs. They came and went from work every day, right? They interacted with members of the public. And the court recognized that what they experienced was human trafficking. Um, another common myth, in, and this is, I think, because of the term human trafficking. Some people think, oh, trafficking, there must be some kind of movement involved. You have to move across a, a national border or a state border, and that's actually not true. So no movement of any kind is required. Another common myth is that victims or survivors of trafficking are going to self-identify and ask for help. Uh, and I don't think that's borne out by advocates uh, and law enforcement's experiences at all. So we should not expect that people are going to necessarily know that the harms that they're experiencing are human trafficking or to necessarily be super grateful that some helpful person is trying to assist them in getting out of a situation. Yeah. 
And then one more myth that I want to mention is that individuals who are experiencing or being subjected to human trafficking have to be sort of morally perfect who have never done anything wrong in their lives, right? So that's really problematic. It is fairly common that people who have been subjected to human trafficking have also, as part of that trafficking, participated in criminal activity or maybe before have engaged in criminal activity. And that doesn't make them any less of a victim or any less deserving of legal protection and the services that they desire. And I'm wondering, um, what advice would you have to someone? What can people do or, or ways that they can, I don't know, combat human trafficking or stop the systems that enable human trafficking? For me, the people who are doing the real trafficking prevention work are doing things that may not even be explicitly connected to trafficking in their advocacy. They may be working really hard to ensure that people have access to safe, affordable, stable housing. They may do be doing work to ensure that LGBTQ youth are accepted, supportive, and have a safe adults to be around in their community. They might be doing work to ensure that folks with mental health issues or addiction issues have services they need and aren't ostracized in the community. I think that is the real anti-trafficking, trafficking prevention work that needs to be done. Um, ensuring that recent immigrants, people who don't speak English as a first language, people who may lack immigration status, that they're not ostracized in the community. From what I have seen and from what I have heard and studied, traffickers are very, very good at identifying vulnerabilities and exploiting them. And so if we work to make sure that people are connected in communities, that they have the resources that they need, um, there's much less likelihood that traffickers can then exploit them. Right. And then here in Arkansas or nationally, what kind of ways are, are law enforcement or legally um, we taking steps to combat human trafficking? And what still kind of needs to be done to make it better? So there are um, a handful of organizations in Northwest Arkansas uh, that are working to provide services to survivors of trafficking. So Arkansas Immigrant Defense provides legal representation. Into the Light provides various forms of assistance. Magdalene Serenity House provides long-term housing and support to survivors. Also, our child advocacy centers provide forensic interviewing and appropriate care to child victims. Um, I think where we can continue to use more work is thinking about how can we in Northwest Arkansas, particularly with our skyrocketing housing prices, how can we address housing issues? How can we ensure that we are not criminalizing um, immigrants? How can we make sure that workers are aware of their workplace rights and that those rights are enforced and they're not fearful of coming forward? In terms of what we can do, um, in 2014, um, the Attorney General's Task Force on Human Trafficking issued a report with 19 recommendations. Um, and the task force was made up of representatives from across our state government. They were recommendations for what the state of Arkansas might do to effectively address human trafficking in our state. And unfortunately, it looks like most of those things have not been implemented. Whether We could have a separate discussion from a policy perspective about whether they're all the best recommendations or whether things have changed in the intervening eight years. But I do think that there's more that this state could do to address human trafficking also, um, we know that there have never been any federal labor trafficking prosecutions in our state. I'm aware of one prosecution on the state level of a restaurant owner in Jonesboro. 
And that's also, we might also think about um, to the extent that law enforcement uh, is going to look at labor trafficking, how they can more effectively do that work. Um, one positive note is that the um, Arkansas Coalition Against Sexual Assault has recently funded 12 positions around the state of anti-human trafficking advocates who are going to be working at different agencies, um, trying to provide services to survivors, but also doing education work, and I think trying to get at this question of prevalence so that we have a better sense of exactly what the issue looks like in Arkansas. All right. That's pretty much all I had for you, Annie. Was there anything else you wanted to add or say or think people should know? Just that social isolation and lack of support is something that really puts people at risk for being abused in a variety of ways. One of those ways is human trafficking. Um, And so for those people who genuinely and deeply care about human trafficking, I think what they can ask themselves is, Who am I inadvertently isolating in this community? Who are the groups that I belong to inadvertently isolating? And what can I do to stop doing that or to ensure that they have um, the connections that they need so that traffickers can't take advantage of them or try to? Oh, I'm doing a project. Can I mention it? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned that or I mentioned that one of the myths around human trafficking is that sex trafficking is the only form of human trafficking. And I received funding from the Women's Giving Circle at the university to create an Arkansas Labor Trafficking Awareness Project. So it's a project that I hope will be completed in the next few months. And what it will do is provide online training modules to law enforcement, other first responders, and service providers about labor trafficking um, so that they can hopefully better understand what it is, what it might look like in our state, the resources available to people who are experiencing labor trafficking as well. Wow. And that'll be ready, or you hope it'll be ready. By the end of this year, yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Annie, for um, speaking with me. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. That was Annie Smith, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas, speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Welcoming Week NWA is officially underway after an opening ceremony at the Jones Center in Springdale this morning. The annual observation dovetails with the aspiration from groups like the Northwest Arkansas Council to attract and retain diverse talent here. And it's designed to increase the diversity, equity, and inclusivity of the region. Through the 18th of this month, so an extra long sort of week, there are concerts, a welcome kit drive, film screenings, community gatherings, and more across Northwest Arkansas. Yesterday, we reached Monica Kumar, a belonging and inclusion strategist, and Margot Labaster, the executive director of Engage NWA, an organization working to improve the inclusivity of the region. Monica Kumar says the efforts this month are to emphasize a sense of belonging. And I think of belonging as a very wide and deep Um, sort of river and ocean. And so for us, thinking about the gambit of and the, you know, the breadth of um, events that have that have manifested this year, I think it all speaks to a sense of belonging. It speaks to a sense of where do you feel like you can plug in? Where do you feel like you feel most at home? What is, you know, what speaks to your heart? 
the, you know, the most. And I think in that sense, our libraries and our, um, our program um, providers have really, really uh, thought about that and really um, strategically planned around that. And so we've had we've had organizations just create incredibly diverse events. And I think for that, and I would, wouldn't even call them events, I would call them experiences that people can really um, step into and, you know, feel that they're authentic. And I think that that is, that is what makes a place welcoming and where you feel like you truly belong, which is that you can find where you want to step in um, and then hopefully, you know, venture out from that because you meet someone where you feel comfortable that's doing something different. And then that gives you the confidence and the excitement to try something new. It's also designed to be to work both ways. We talk about welcoming week and, and we're talking about welcoming newcomers to Northwest Arkansas or the United States or the Ozarks or whatever. But this is also a chance for those of us who've lived here for a long time or might be natives to explore as well. Yeah, it's not only about welcoming newcomers, but it's about how do we activate and create inclusive spaces where every, like to Monica's point, where everyone feels like they belong. I think the the term welcoming, you know, definitely means yes, people coming in, but it's so much about this two-way street piece. You know, what are we what are we doing here to welcome newcomers? But then how are we looking at all of our spaces so that anyone coming to them, whether you just arrived here or whether you've lived here your whole life, you, we want you to feel welcome and included. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm coming on being here for nine years. And while that wasn't the plan, I feel incredibly honored and privileged that we've been able to do that. And I do now feel like, oh, you know, yes, I can still remember what it feels like to move here, but I also have been able to be really, um, really lucky and build relationships with organizations and with people that have been here for much longer than I have and that are from here. And I've learned so much about community building and how do you build a sense of inclusion and welcoming from people who live here and have lived here for a long time. And I think we want Welcoming Week to reflect that. And of course, the idea behind Welcoming Week and the idea, the spirit of inclusiveness is to go beyond mid-September. That while it may not be uh, as as highlighted, it's it's something that happens 365 days a year. I mean, that's my dream, Carl. You just you just like you just um, spread out my dream. I you know I really do I really do think that the way I would love to think of Welcoming Week is just a celebration of our welcoming year, instead of it being a highlight of you know, the year and then um and then, you know, we forget about it till the till a few months before the next year. So for me, I want to cat I want this year's welcoming week to really catalyze what does the year look like to build a deep sense of belonging. And in that sense, you know, we are asking, especially at our closing event, um, at our closing celebration, we're asking our organizations to step up to the mic and share one, you know, what they what they loved about the week and where they participated. But more than that, we're asking Asking them to share what are they going to be doing during the year because our organizations do so much and sometimes it gets kind of stuck in the shadows because there's so much going on here so we're really hoping that they will step up to the mic and share what is welcoming look like for the year in their organizations and how can people get involved so yeah for me this is just like uh, the the this is the the doorway um to a huge um experience of welcoming through the year for our for our region Monica Kumar is a belonging and inclusion strategist, and Margot Lamaster is the executive director of Engage NWA. They talked with me via Zoom about Welcoming Week NWA 
yesterday. Much more about the goals and experiences connected to the observation can be found at welcomingweeknwa.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Magdalene Serenity House, a nonprofit committed to helping women rebuild their lives after trauma, addiction, and incarceration, will host their inaugural event, Rebuilding Her, Thursday, September 29th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. The event will include a five-year birthday celebration of the organization, honoring the founders of the organization and recognizing the achievements of the graduates in their recovery journeys. For more information and tickets, lovehealsnwa.org. Yesterday afternoon, Fayetteville Mayor Lionel Jordan welcomed a crowd of a few hundred people to the Ramble, a major component of the city's cultural arts corridor. Mayor Jordan said the Ramble is a strategic investment in the city's creative economy, water quality, green spaces, local businesses, and most importantly, in his opinion, a space for children to embrace art. I wasn't really exposed to the arts. When I was 16 years old, they brought a bus over and they took me to see at the University of Arkansas, Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night. We may be familiar with that. And I was hooked on the arts. And it took that one experience for me to have a lifelong appreciation and love for the arts. What I wanted to do, and I thought if I ever got a chance I would build something, we would build something, let me clarify that, we would build something that every child can come to. They don't have to wait till they're 16, they can be exposed to the arts right now. In this place, in this time, right now and forever. Other speakers at the event included Robert Burns from the Walton Family Foundation and Marty Maxwell Lane, the director of the School of Art at the University of Arkansas. An artist who embraces the power of art and its potential to build community is Jennifer Coe. The violinist's 2021 recording, Alone Together, earned her the Best Instrumental Solo Grammy Award. The record, a response to the pandemic and the financial hardships the pandemic placed upon artists, includes 39 world premiere recordings of commissioned works by established composers and the emerging composers they recommended. Jennifer Coe performs tonight at 8 at the Momentary in Bentonville. Yesterday, she talked with me via Zoom. I asked her about her collaborative spirit, both in recorded works and often on stage. I think I really believe in community. I believe in um artists. I believe in the best sides of ourselves as human beings, uh, which means that I, I believe in the generosity of artists and of people in general. I mean, at times it can be difficult, <laughs> but um, I think so. And then I think also I like working with people who inspire me. I, I like learning things. I'm curious about um, always discovering things. So I I think I try to work with the people that I know um, will also make me a better artist. And I think that's our job as artists to inspire each other. Well, I think you also have a generosity or or trust or partnership with audiences. Uh, that comes so. quite through. I hope so. I mean, I um, I really, I feel so lucky um, that I've been able to learn and work with such great collaborators and colleagues. And um, I feel lucky that I've seen some of the best sides of people, most generous sides of people, but being able to open up the process um, and kind of share share the spirit of, of art and music and collaboration 
um, those are the things I love most. So those, in some ways, those are the things I love sharing with others. I love Alone Together. Everything about it. The concept, um, the sharing of artists and composers we, the, the audience may not know of, the idea that it was to help heal and to help, you know, financially uplift artists. Did that come to you over time or was it sort of a flash that this would be something that can really benefit us during the pandemic? I think I, I didn't, I completely didn't realize um, that, for example, it would become a musical archive of that time. I, th I think in that moment, it came very quickly because um, I think I remember coming home on a Monday or a Tuesday. Um, and then the following day, every single engagement canceled, like every half hour, I was getting um, another message that another concert had gotten canceled. And of course, my first reaction was panic because I'm also a freelance um, artist, which meant that all of my income, all of my work would just disappeared in, in the course of 24 hours. And then I realized the next day, I think I realized, no, I, I, I'm actually lucky. Um, my work has been postponed. It hasn't actually been all canceled. Um, and then I remembered how hard it was to be um, a younger artist coming out of school um, trying, I mean, it's hard enough trying to, <laughs> trying to be an artist in general. Uh, I think after school, it's really tough, um, but then to throw a pandemic on top of it. So immediately the idea came really quickly. I think the shelter in place order probably fell on a Thursday, at least in New York. Um, and I remembered waking up on Saturday morning thinking I, I just knew what had to be done. Um, and I was lucky enough I, that I run a nonprofit. Um, so, but I, I am very grateful to my board because, of course, everybody was kind of uh, panicked and, and everybody reacted to the news in different ways. Um, and I was, at that time, I was quite determined. So I, I feel lucky that they also allowed me to do this project pretty quickly. So within, it was just within maybe two weeks of the shelter in place order that, that the project started. Yeah. But I, I think I managed to, to um, start getting funding for it within a week or so. Finally, I so appreciate you and other artists and conductors and composers who are committed to expanding the world of what we think as performance or orchestral or classical music, whatever term you want to use. But it feels to me as if over the last just five to 10 years, there has been a welcoming of expanding of who we listen to, who we listen to live. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've never seen, I, I've, I don't believe in genre. Um, and I don't believe that there's a separation Um uh, between different art forms, I guess. And so, and, and kind of referencing alone together, this was really something that I did not realize at the time, but now when I play this program, it just brings me back to that 
period. And all of everything, I think that maybe all of us felt, of course, at different times. Um, and it just, in some ways, I think it just shows that, that that's the point of art. Um, it reconnects us or connects us um, to who we are, to experiences we've all shared experiences we've had, communal experiences we've had. Um, and it reminds us of how essentially we feel. Um, they might be pain, sometimes it's painful memories, um, but it's important to remember. Jennifer Coe performs tonight at 8 at the Momentary in the Roadhouse in Bentonville. Her website, jenniferco.com. More about tonight's concert at themomentary.org. In the background is Robert Glasper doing a Herbie Hancock tune. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Robert Glasper as well as Herbie Hancock, plus music from Pat Bianchi, Larry Willis, Eddie Gomez, and much more. Join me for Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large, and after two weeks being in the studio with me, Becca Martin-Brown, features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, has said, that's too much. Let's go back to the phone. Hello, Becca. <laughs> Hi, Kyle. And that's not it at all. It was the short week with Labor Day that makes everything else not catastrophic, but busy. I have told the rest of the Ozarks at Large team, I love a three-day weekend. I'm not fond of the four-day work week that follows. And we got to figure out how to make this work. I could not have put it better. But we're going into a super cool weekend this week of really interesting things you can do. Oh my gosh, this is yes. kind of the, not news of the weird, this is kind of the things you might not know to do otherwise edition. Like Pioneer Days at St. Paul. You go out of Fayetteville on Arkansas 16. It's about 35, 40 minutes. St. Paul was on the St. Louis-San Francisco Railroad. The train went through St. Paul to Pettigrew, which is where my family's from, and turned around there to come back to Fayetteville. And Pioneer Days is this old-fashioned music, arts, and crafts. They have a chicken lunch tomorrow. They have a parade at 11 o'clock tomorrow. It's just fun. And as I recall seeing... They're also having a book sale at the St. Paul Library. And I don't know if they still do. They used to have as their grand marshals the oldest people who showed up for the parade. And you could go the other direction, well, kind of the same direction, and go to Eureka Springs because this is Antique Autos in the Ozarks this weekend for the 51st year. And they'll have a parade. And they'll have a parade. They have, it's all at Pine Mountain Village in Eureka Springs, and it starts tonight, and they'll have a sunset cruise tonight, and then they'll have the Antique Auto Parade through Historic downtown at 11 o'clock tomorrow, and then they'll have vendors and a bouncy house and painting and all that stuff at Pine Mountain. But you're not done yet, are you? Oh, No. Tomorrow is also Medieval and Fantasy LARP Day at the Fayetteville Public Library. 
and they're going to have foam dagger making and how to make those woven paracord bracelets and backstrap weaving and jewelry making and cookie decorating and the basics of lettering and calligraphy all day long from 9 to 6 tomorrow, and it's all free. Right. So far, pioneer days, antique cars, medieval. So we're all, we've got sort of this in the past pattern going. And I'm not done yet. From 10 to noon tomorrow, you can go to the Rogers Historical Museum for their creation station. We learned this word a couple of weeks ago. They are going to be making a thaumatrope. Yes, and that is that little thing that from, I don't know, 150 years ago that would be on a string. It had an image, but it would kind of move when you did it right. You spin it and it looks, it creates an optical illusion. And they're going to teach kids how to make those. So far, do you know how much money we've spent? I don't think we've spent, a, well, other than gas, right? Because you're going to have to go from places to places. But admission right. charges, zilch. Absolutely. And we're not done yet. Tomorrow is also the 44th edition of the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History, Ozark Quilt Fair. That's right. Which is the first in-person one since the pandemic. That happens from 10 to 2. It's outdoors on the museum grounds. They have 26 quilters signed up to display more than 100 quilts. Still spending $0 unless you get hot dogs at the downtown dogs food truck. Mm. Fair enough. Tomorrow is also Shire Fest at Shire Post Mint in West Fork, where they're going to have vendors and tours of the mint and live music. The mint was started by Tom Maringer mm-hmm. 20 years ago, and it makes fantasy coins like coins for the Lord of the Rings. Right, and Game of Thrones and things like that. This is your chance to go and see it, get some snacks, because they're going to have food vendors, listen to some music, and if you're lucky, you'll get to talk to Tom Maringer, who is iconic. Yes, I think that's a fair, fair way to put it. Again, you know how much this costs unless you buy food? Zero. So you can save all of your money Uh to go to Fort Smith tomorrow night Mm -hmm. to go see the season opener of the Fort Smith Symphony, which features cellist Tess Kent, and the music includes Haydn's Cello Concerto Number 1, Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight, oh, I'm going to butcher this, Antonin Dvorak, Dvorak, New World Symphony. And you don't really have to have all that much money because tickets are $45. And there's a post-symphony party at the bakery district that has music and you get your beverage free with your symphony ticket. See? Look at that. This weekend is paying for itself, kind of. <laughs> so check out fortsmithsymphony.org to see if they have any tickets left. And if you get the What's Up newsletter on Friday... All of this will be in it in case you weren't able to take notes because you were driving. All right. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, talking to us from her office in Bella Vista. Thank you, Becca. See you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is 
Courtney Lanning. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Kyle, thanks for having me. Okay. Pinocchio, one of the standard sort of fairy tales or legends that's been made into many different kinds of movies, most famously that animated one with Jiminy Cricket. There is a new version. What do we think? Well, Kyle, I am not a big fan of these Disney live-action remakes. I think most of them are soulless cash grabs aimed at nostalgic fans, and this movie is a pure demonstration of that. Pinocchio is soulless in almost every way, which is ironic. Right. Because he wants to be a real boy. This wants to be a real movie, (laughs) but it never quite gets there. The animation is subpar. Most of the music feels half-finished, and even Tom Hanks... America's Sweetheart is not enough to save this picture. So you mentioned the animation is subpar, the music isn't there. I think when we think Disney in our heads, we think of those classic Disney films. But this isn't an anomaly when it comes to sort of half-baked concepts from The House of Mouse, is it? It's not. And, you know, even within just these live-action remakes that they've started doing over the last decade, decade and a half or so, Um, critics will destroy them and then they'll go on to make a lot of money. So Disney goes, well, who cares what you think? We made a lot of money. Case in point, uh, The Lion King, which came out in 2019, absolutely heartless compared to the original and made a billion dollars. Aladdin came out that same year, mostly heartless again made a billion dollars at the box office. So you know what the House of Mouse is going to keep doing. Pinocchio here feels like the equivalent of the Disney direct-to-DVD sequels that we were flooded with in the 90s and early 2000s. You know the ones I'm talking about. You got Pocahontas 2, Aladdin 2, Lion King 1.5. All of these junk movies, except here there's no DVD. They're just dumped onto Disney Plus to bolster its library, which ironically also contains the 1940 animated hit Pinocchio, which you should very much watch instead. And Kyle, here's a fun fact. Pinocchio, the 1940s version, is one of the rare movies to have a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. During your course of 90 to 100 minutes of, you know, you had to watch this because you're a reviewer. Was there anything that made you smile? I will say this. There were two good things about this movie. Um... All of Geppetto's cuckoo clocks that he made were hilarious. Um, I laughed at every single one that they showed because Geppetto is a tinkerer. He has all these clocks that he's made on the wall. Um, Every one of them made me laugh. I will give them that. And the Blue Fairy was done really well, too. Uh, But that's, that's honestly it. Is there even a reason to do this? I don't think so. But, you know, Pinocchio is a story that has been done not just by Disney, but by tons and tons of people. Just this year alone, we have competing Pinocchios coming out, I think within a month of each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, who is an Academy Award-winning director, has a Pinocchio adaptation coming out for Netflix, I think in the next month. So this is clearly a popular story from a late 1800s Italian novel, which, let me tell you, is nothing like the cartoon. <laughs> right, right. Well, and if anyone's going to find the dark lining in all this, it'll be Del Toro. You know, if, if I could change this story, if Disney wanted to hire me as a consultant, maybe a Pinocchio prequel that focuses on Geppetto's family that he lost. You know, this Pinocchio sort of hints at, unlike the cartoon, that Geppetto had a wife and a son. 
he was very much in love with, and he lost them. The movie doesn't say how, but it's understood in this prequel that Pinocchio is supposed to be, you know, a second chance at Geppetto having a son after losing his first. Um, having a, a prequel that focused on his family that he lost, showing them in love, um, you know, going through that loss, him finding his famous friends from the cartoon like Figaro the kitten and Cleo the goldfish. They could have had a heartwarming movie about him working through his grief and finding renewed life and artistic creation. The movie could have kept Tom Hanks as Geppetto because honestly, he was a great actor for that role. And the movie could have even ended with him drawing up plans for a certain famous puppet that we all know. But that would have required risk and work and things that the House of Mouse clearly did not want to put into this project. What are we going to talk about next week? Uh, next week, I'll have a review of a new Netflix comedy coming out called Do Revenge, which features a familiar Stranger Things actor in a lead role. Millie Bobby Brown? No. Okay. I like her. <laughs> I mean, I like all of the Stranger Things people. All right. Until Courtney Lanning. Oh, you can read the full review of Pinocchio in today's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And until Courtney Lanning is hired by Disney, Courtney Lanning will continue to give us reviews every Friday. Courtney, thanks so much. Kyle, thanks for having me. My name is Paul, host of KUF's Generic Blue Show, which airs Friday nights. Now think about your favorite instrument. Maybe it's the guitar, the piano, or maybe the human voice. Think about how hearing that instrument reaches you deep down in your heart and your soul. There's nothing else like it. And there's nothing else like listener support when it comes to funding KUAF. Listener support is our voice. Help our voice continue to have a place in your life and in the lives of thousands of other listeners. Give now at supportkuaf.com. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, in Pineville, Missouri. Timothy Dennis produced today's program inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors to our Friday program included Daniel Carruth, Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Matthew Moore delivered the news and the sound about the official opening of the Ramble in Fayetteville. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll be back with you Sunday morning at 9 for the next edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. Brand new week of daily shows will begin Monday at noon and 7 on KUAF. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being here.